Recorded live at Toxin Tasting Studios, it's the Clerical Errors Podcast. The podcast that shows you what's behind the collar. Let's go. From the Toxin Tasting Studios, I am Bullhagen. And I'm Brick. And I'm Vicker. Welcome to the show. Which is Clerical Errors, the show that shows you what's behind the collar. Yes. I was going to get there. I forgot. Sometimes I don't remember all the information I'm supposed to say. <laughs> Um, so, good to have you with us today. Um, we don't have a beverage today. We don't. I'm sorry. So, let us know what you're drinking. Vicar, where, where, where can they uh, let us know what they're having to drink? Uh, they, could, they could email us at feedback at clericalerrors.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, Facebook.com slash clericalerrorspodcast. Mm-hmm. And Twitter at clericalerrorsp, uh, the P for podcast. At me, bro. Yes. All right. So, uh, I, I'm getting used to that kind of confused look of the vicar. Mm-hmm. You notice that? That kind of, I mean, it's almost his natural face at me at this point. <laughs> probably, and prob- it, probably wondering what is it like to have such a large brain. I think that's what he's thinking. What do you think he's thinking? I I think so. I think that he's he's like, or, man, how how do the rest of my uh, fellow seminarians get by with their obviously inferior vicarage supervisors. Right. Or maybe he was wondering, how how did he, this human being have a mind that matches his deltoids? It's true. I, maybe that's what he's thinking. Brains and brawn. Right. The whole package. Yes. That, yes. And I don't know if you remember from an earlier episode that I have named my biceps law and the other one gospel. Apropos, right? Very. So. Very. Welcome to the show. So uh, you probably have no idea, but what are you preaching on? Well, uh, <laughs> what is the text, Vicar? The text is Luke 7, 11 through 17. Yes. Would you read that text for us, please? Yes. Soon afterward, he went into a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. All right. Very good. So, I guess where we might want to just start is, uh, you know, what part of the catechism is this talking about? What part of the catechism? Like if you had to like put this this Bible history and say, okay, this part of the cat, you know, this goes with this part of the catechism. Mm-hmm. What would you like? Where would you put it? I would put it. Um, well, it could be a couple of places, uh, but probably first and foremost, probably the second article. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Of the creed. And why would you why would you put it there? Because uh, he is this is a. Uh, realization that the people even saw 
of the divinity of Christ, that he is a great prophet, mm-hmm. and uh, that he raises from the dead. So the other thing I was thinking of, it could be a baptismal text. Okay. Uh, being buried and raised with Christ. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like well, a Roman six type of thing. Right. What were you thinking? I was thinking third article, uh, the resurrection of the dead. Oh, kind of like the Valley of the Dry Bones type of a thing. Right. Dead be- being because this this little you know this boy was dead, and Christ raised him from the dead, which he will do for all of us on the last day. Kind of like uh, when God created Adam, he breathed life into him in mm-hmm. much the same way he breathed life into yeah. That would be a good place, too. So, yeah, we have a lot of different uh, ways in which you could teach this text uh, to your children uh, and present law and gospel. Mm-hmm. The law here is obviously that this boy is dead. Mm-hmm. Death enters the world through sin, and the wages of sin is death. This is why this boy dies. He doesn't die because he was sick. He doesn't die because he was old. He dies because he was a sinner. And and Christ can do something about that. Right. Christ has compassion. And it, it's interesting because uh, I, fa- I, I, I realized that last week I misspoke when I said we shouldn't be kind, that we should love but not be kind. What I really meant to say is that we should, uh, we should love, and that includes kindness, but what I meant is we shouldn't be nice. And Jesus isn't very nice in this text either. Right. He has compassion on this woman, but then what does he tell her to do? Stop crying. Stop crying. I mean, it's really uh, a jarring thing, and most of us don't think about right. it that way. But Vicar, I wouldn't rec- recommend you do that. Like if you are someone comes to you and you know their only son dies and they're a widow and yeah, stop crying. <laughs> don't do that. All right, bless your Jesus. But Jesus does this at Jesus sees deeper than we do. And I think this shows us, too, that our world isn't always as it appears to be. Mm -hmm. Jesus often tells people to stop crying. He tells this woman here to stop crying. He tells uh, the people who are wailing outside uh, of Jairus' house for Mm -hmm. Jairus' daughter, he tells them to stop crying because she's sleeping. She's not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laugh at him. But where And so the reality is very different because Jesus is going to change it. He's mm-hmm. going to raise them from the dead. Where Jesus does tell us to cry, I think that's even more interesting. Yeah, weep for you and your children. Right, so when Jesus is going to the cross, there's a crowd who's weeping and wailing over him, and he says, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves. Right. Uh, because judgment is coming. And I think, you know, once we get into kind of Lent, I think that would be a very interesting way to talk about how we should observe Jesus' passion. Mm -hmm. And one of the false ways, one of the misunderstood ways of observing Jesus' passion uh, is to be all somber and crying during Lent and all of this sort of thing. And uh, Jesus' words there apply to us as well. Mm -hmm. That, oh, look at how terrible they were to Jesus. Then we watch Passion of the Christ, and we get all grossed out. And, but, uh, and especially, you know, I think this passage has a couple of things in it, too, That because when you, you're preaching a miracle like this, um, you want to use the, the things that make each miracle different from the others that you wind up focusing on. Mm-hmm. 
One is, this is uh, the death of her son, right? Um, and uh, um, there are other examples where, where that is brought out as being, you know, one of the great pains. Um, you know, you think of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his own son, for example. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, I think, from a, just a instruction here is how Jesus recognizes um, the vocation of a son. Yeah, and that's where I think there's a real tight connection between this text and the crucifixion in John, mm-hmm. where Jesus commends his mother, who is also a widow, who is also, uh, you know, we're not sure if Jesus is her only son or not. We've talked about that, right? Right. Um, before, and you can go back and listen to those episodes, uh, but he commends her into the care of John. Um, so it's, uh, the parallels kind of between these texts are, are interesting in that, in that respect. And, and also it is a, a resurrection account as well. It's kind of like mm-hmm. a, an Easter text about six months. A resurrection text that is both like and unlike what it's going to be on the last day. Right. Because this son is going to die again. Right. His resurrection is temporary. But the resurrection which Jesus gives to us, uh, that happens not only spiritually, it happens first spiritually uh, in our baptisms and when we hear the word and faith is created, uh, but that spiritual resurrection will then go hand in hand with a bodily resurrection. That's why we say in in the catechism, in the explanation, that Christ will raise me and all the dead, mm-hmm. but he will give eternal life to me and all believers in Christ. Right. Because all the dead are going to be raised on the last day. So which which begs the question then, you know, if, as I get into my, my uh, seventh grade confirmation student mind, what would a seventh grade confirmation student ask? Are we zombies? Uh, maybe. They might ask, well, what did that son experience mm-hmm. did he did he experience hell did he experience heaven or was he asleep how would you answer that how would i answer that yeah um i think the text it doesn't tell us for a reason right because i think oftentimes we want to speculate on that stuff and it's amazing what people speculate on yeah right. everybody wants to talk about you know being in heaven and all the stuff there, but the Bible doesn't actually talk very much about the time we die to right. the time that we are raised from the dead. Because, because, uh, and I think it's our our own minds that wouldn't even be able to understand it, anyways. Or we get carried away with, we get so concerned. Oh, you know, will we be bored? <laughs> yeah, we we speculate needlessly about right. this stuff. What we do know is that wherever this boy was, he was conscious. Okay, he wasn't asleep; he was conscious. Um, he was experiencing something, whether it be the bliss of heaven or the pain of hell. Um, and uh, and if he was with Christ, it is far better. So, what, what's then your take on near death experiences? They may or may not be true. Yeah. But the thing is, is that we have no way of verifying. If they are or not, right? Well, I can tell I, you. I can tell you. Sometimes, as pastors, we hear these once in a while, mm-hmm. right? And there are times where we think, "Oh, that's 
That's interesting. At our times, we're like, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's part of our desire to want to base the faith in something other than God's word. Right. Which, it, for example, the the Heavens for Realsies book. Right. Um, which was really popular about a boy who knew things that he could, wouldn't have in any way be able to know. Mm-hmm. You know? But that's not the basis of faith. And the thing is, is that th- could there have been some spiritual activity there? Maybe. I'm not always so sure that it's God. I think the devil can also send delusions and mix in a lot of truth with a lot of error. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is... Uh, Which is... Boy, we've gotten off topic quickly. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but, this is good. I... But but yeah, that that's just it is is um it, it uh, brings up an authority that is not scripture mm-hmm. that base people will be basing um opinions or beliefs or ideas about salvation which may or may not be true but because someone a boy saw this and it couldn't be proved or all those things well then it must be true well. A lot of a lot of people can be misled in other ways using that same kind of reason or logic. Right. And what is somebody going to experience that the Bible hasn't already laid down for us? So either they've experienced what the Bible teaches, and then it's superfluous, or they experience something that the Bible doesn't teach, and that means that it's from the evil one. Right. So this is why... We need to stick with God's word, guys, because uh, we walk by faith and not by sight, and that includes near-death experiences. Vicar, have you ever had a near-death experience? Just before every Greek test. Okay. I completely understand. <laughs> that, that'd be odd if it actually had. Well, I was, <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something happened when I was a boy, and... Um, I saw my great grandma, and she, you know, I, I'd be awkward. He saw the he- the the angels descending to grab him, and then that <laughs> test came, and they all disappeared. <laughs> yeah, was there a light at the end of the tunnel before the test, or no? There was just lots of screaming and gnashing of teeth. Oh yeah, I can I can imagine that. I can only imagine the the one I which work- is evil. That that song is evil. I can only imagine. You know why it's evil? Why is it evil, Berg? It's evil because we can't imagine it. Okay, wait, wait, stop, stop. Peter, we need some real talk music. Real talk. Okay. okay Go. So, yes. Yeah, so everybody loves this stupid thing. They even made a movie about it. This I can only imagine. Blah, 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 blah. I can only imagine. It's all sappy and gross. And the problem with this is is that it's not true because you can't imagine it. You can't only imagine. Because, first of all, that's stupid. And really, just an, an, a terrible way to use language. The second thing is is that the Bible teaches us in 1 Corinthians that we can't imagine it. God says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We can't imagine it. And that's what makes it so much better. It makes it so much better that what God has waiting for us, for those who love him, for those whom he has loved first and made lovable, what he has prepared for us is so great and so amazing that we can't even imagine it. And 
That is what's wonderful. And that's why if you're listening to that song, you shouldn't listen to it anymore. Which goes back to the point earlier in, 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 in this way. The reason why people get into near-death experiences, what exactly happens, what are you doing, what did that guy experience, it's because, you know, if you were to explain to your confirmation students that heaven is essentially an eternal worship service, mm-hmm. they're not going to want to go to heaven. No. What, what is uh, the heavy metal song that's your favorite? Um, well, they said that the chant is, you know, then you party and party in hell. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, um, or uh, uh, you, you see the same thing in Billy Joel's song, Only the Good Die Young. Right. Or in the country song, uh, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, but Nobody Wants to Go Now. Right. But, but my point is, like, if it's you can't imagine, it would be hard for anybody to imagine any of that. It's beyond. They can't see it. They can't hear it. And, for example, we don't know what it's like to be sinless. Right. We don't know what perfection is. It kind of, transfiguration. And, and let's just be honest. We don't love God like we ought to. Right. You know, G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a great early 20th century writer. Stuff is amazing. He's a Roman Catholic. But he wrote that the Mass is boring and burdensome unless one loves God. The only reason why we get bored in church is because we don't love God perfectly. Right. That's the thing. It's because we don't love God perfectly. But in heaven, we will love God perfectly. And that's why we will enjoy church forever. Right. So, but I can only imagine that, Bert. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> hey, should we get to my list? Yes, please. <laughs> Peter, it's time for the top 12 list. Play the intro. Enough nonsense. It's time for Bullhagen's Top 12. All right, uh, we are continuing our list prepared by, do you remember Vicar? C.F.W. Walther. Right. And what do all the letters mean? It's Carl Friedrich and Ferdinand. It's Ferdinand. I I just say Walther, I just skip the letters. Carl Ferdinand Wilhelm. That's a demerit. So, yes, it is. And he was actually known as Ferdinand. So, by his friends, if I am remembering correctly. So, I called him Seawall. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are we are talking about from his list uh, the distinction proper distinction between law and gospel, which is the name of. Uh, the book this is from, which is from uh, lectures he had made, ultimately, right? Yep. And um, Oh, and you guys can actually purchase uh, an updated book. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, Pastor Bullhagen is reading from an older translation, but there is a new translation that is very uh, reader-accessible uh, at our publishing house, Concordia Publishing House. So um, please, uh, well, and Hannah... If you're listening to this, uh, if you could post that on the Facebook page. How are you, Hannah? We haven't heard from you for a while. You doing good? So we're opening the lines of communication. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize my book was old. It can't be that old. I got it in seminary. You've been out of seminary for a Uh, while, buddy. (laughs) You have seven, you've had 17, 18, 17 vicars, so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I... 
I guess I already admitted that I knew Walther, so. That's true. All right. <laughs> so we are on number six. In the second place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached in its full sternness and the gospel is not in its full sweetness. When on the contrary, gospel elements are mingled with the law and the law elements with the gospel. So the intermingling of law and gospel. So the law is not seen in its full weight, that being sin is death, and the gospel not in its full sweetness, the full assurance of life and salvation. Mm -hmm. And when those are mixed, what would be an example of them getting mixed in this, this setting? Um. We'll just say okay. So let's let's start with the law. The law not being uh, preached in its full sternness. The law not being preached in its full sternness would be something like, "Do your best, and God will do the rest." If you give it the old college try, God will count it for good. Right. He sees you trying. He rewards your effort. Right. You might not be able to do it perfectly, but. You gave it a try, and God will reward your good intentions. And, and uh, I guess behind the collar moment is this is one of the challenges of the preacher is to preach the law in a way that strikes the heart of everyone. Mm-hmm. That they understand the sternness. You guys of the have law. to know that a sermon is kind of like going bird hunting with a shotgun. Now you know about. Uh, bird shot, right? Mm -hmm. It uh, It's a bunch of little BBs. When you shoot the uh, your shotgun, the BBs go and they kind of form an arc. And really, that's what's happening in a sermon. We're going duck hunting and we're trying to take down as many of you as possible. Right. So do you think that that's probably the best way of doing pastoral care? Like if you actually have a, uh, like a real problem? No. No, the best place for that is private absolution. Kind of like when you go to the doctor. Right. When you go to the doctor, you guys one-on-one -on -one sit there and, oh, this is happening. This hurts. And we look at your past medical history and we do all that kind of stuff. So you're saying just getting uh, your medical information from Dr. Oz generally isn't enough. Yes, that is that is what I'm saying. Okay. You should actually go to the doctor. Right. Okay. Are you writing this down, Vicar? Write it down. Yes. All right. So uh, so that would be uh, a case of the law not being preached in its full sternness. So the gospel not being preached in its full sweetness uh, would be um, a lot of our uh, very popular uh, televangelists or crusaders, mm -hmm. like, uh, like Billy Graham, for example. Okay? How dare you? I know. I How dare you, sir? But we, we have to call a spade a spade. How, you know how many people were saved? How dare you? <laughs> well, let's look, at what the, let's look at what he preached, right? How dare you? <laughs> I keep doing that until you're really annoyed. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know. I, I'm not playing. I guess I'm not playing that game. Okay. How I, dare you? Okay, go ahead. Uh, but, you know, he preaches the gospel very clearly. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for your sins. Very, very good gospel preaching. And then he takes away the sweetness by saying, now it's time for you 
to make a decision for Jesus. Right. So at the end of it, he puts a condition on it. At the end of it, he puts you back under the law. This is what God has done for you. Now this is what you have to do for God. But, but then people might say, well, that's just a formality, because by making a decision, you're really saying the same thing, but it's not just a formality, because then it really does screw up the gospel. You know, you it, know. it goes back to what you said at, in the last episode, where people have asked, do I believe enough? Right. If we say that you have to make a decision for Christ, what you're saying is that faith is a work. And if faith is a work, then you are saved by your works, namely by faith. Right. Or let's say someone is, struggles from dementia. Mm-hmm. They can't make any decisions. <laughs> yeah. Have they lost their faith? That, that, how many times have we heard that as pastors? Or how about babies? Right. Right. What about babies? What about babies? Uh, do they have to, are they saved in a different way? Well, then there's not one pathway to heaven. Is there? Right. Until they hit some age of accountability where they can finally decide something. Yeah. And so so, so people might think, well, that's just a formality, but actually it's not. It's just you're dancing around the same, because if you decide or you, you, you know, all, well, how's that different than just receiving the gospel? You know, well, there is a difference. There's a huge difference. Who, who is doing the work? Is God creating faith in your heart? Is God raising you from the dead? Like, what did what could that young man do? Could that young man ask for help who was dead on the beer? Right. Was, no. Did Jesus say, okay, young man, make a decision for me and I'll come raise you from the dead? Right. No, of course not. Jesus went and raised him from the dead. And that is what he does with believers. He he uh, His word actually vivifies us. It brings us back to life. Uh, just like you didn't choose to be born the first time, so you don't choose to be born again. All right. Well, you might want to keep that uh, quiet. People might be upset. <laughs> Haters going to hate, man. <laughs> I mean, he saved a lot of people. He didn't. <laughs> All right. People. Hopefully people don't. I'm kidding, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> All right. Number seven. In the third place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the gospel is preached first and then the law. Sanctification first, then justification. Faith first, and then repentance. Good works first, and then grace. All right. Uh, well, the fancy Latin phrase we use for this. The Ordo Salutis. Salutis. The Order of Salvation. And uh, you might think, well, where, where does that happen? Well, it happens a lot. People preach us a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the, the example you gave earlier, you decide, make a decision for Jesus, and then you will be saved. That's the wrong order. Right. Um the uh, example Jesus uses is he talks about bearing fruit. You bear fruit first because you have faith. Faith. You don't bear fruit and then have life. You have life and then you bear fruit. Now, every other religion pretty much is the other way. Right. 
So Walther is basically saying, don't let, you know, the tail wag the dog. Right. Because every other, everything else in life works this way. Right. You know, you get paid and then you work. Like, you Does know, a farmer go out to the field and look for fruit when he hasn't even planted the field yet? Well, that depends, Burke. Is he outstanding in his field? Oh. <laughs> that's a dad joke I like to tell a lot. <laughs> um, so so there is, and then this is actually, what I like about this, this is an actually a very, very easy way to help people spot, spot it. Mm-hmm. It's just to look at the order of things. Right. What is, what am I being told or what am I telling my children, right? Right. Get your act together first and then you'll be saved? No. No, it's, it's a, a life comes um, from the gospel first. Mm-hmm. And you don't, the, you don't preach the, the gospel and then the law as well, which is also the thing you, you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. You preach, Jesus died for your sins, so make a decision. But this is a very easy way to help someone spot uh, law and gospel being right. improperly. It also means, too, that a preacher can't just get up and spout off for, you know, 20 minutes. Like, there actually has to be an idea in his mind, like, where he's going with stuff. Because otherwise, even by his very arrangement of the material, he might actually end up confounding law and gospel. Right, right. It's kind of interesting how he, he talks about what I find interesting is uh, as a pastor is uh, is kind of the struggle as Lutherans that pastors have in preaching sanctification. Yeah. Because you notice, what does he say here? It says, sanctification uh, uh, sanctification first, then justification. Do you notice that where he puts sanctification? You, you preach, what do you preach first? Right. Justification. Right. And then we talk about sanctification. What, right. But I, honestly, I and I, I listen to Pastor Fisk every once in a while, Jonathan Fisk, mm-hmm. and he said something that I thought was very powerful in that um, we don't actually, you know, we say that we believe in sanctification, but we don't actually believe that our preaching does um, create this sort of, you know, inwardly transform lives. Mm-hmm. That it actually does make people holy, and that we should expect fruit. Um, right, and I do think that that is something that uh, we are a little weak on, um, and we we should actually read sermons by Walther, Gerhard, and some of these others who actually. Or how about the epistles? <laughs> exactly, the epistles are. Well, I mean, like we heard it the other the fruits of uh, the works of the flesh. Right, what's thrown in there? Things like drunkenness, orgies, um, sorcery, uh, fits of anger, and what does he say about it? Those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, and I mean those things happen in our own community. Right, people go out and they they get smashed, and that is a sin. That is a sin, and it's a sin on the on the same level as idolatry. Right. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, there is a general appre because of, of that, this is what makes it a, such an art that, that Walther talks about that there's such a, 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 
so much care is given in rightly distinguishing law and gospel, then sometimes to bring up sanctification becomes very difficult, and you just kind of want to just kind of ignore it. Ignore it. You know, so, all right. All right. Number eight. And then we'll make this the last one because I want to get to some garlic. Awesome. All right. Number eight. In the fourth place, the word of God is not rightly divided when the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sin or the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. Now, this is this is something where I think the preaching becomes hard. Mm-hmm. Why? Because when you're preaching a sermon, you are dealing with both groups sometimes. Right. Our congregations are what they call a corpus per mixtum. They're a mixed mm-hmm. body. There are believers in there, and there are unbelievers. And, there, and here Walther is actually using that there are really two types of people. There are terrified sinners, and there are secure sinners. Mm-hmm. Secure sinners live the way they want to live. They don't fear any punishment. They're going to keep doing what they do. Terrified sinners have been struck by the law, and they are in fear for their salvation. This is like the Philippian jailer who comes trembling before uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas, right? You actually see some of this in in the miracle account that Vicar read earlier for the the gospel reading. Mm -hmm. What was their response, many people, to the the healing? They're afraid. They, yeah, they they uh, yeah they were afraid, uh, because, you know, we talk a lot about wanting to see miracles and stuff. We really don't want. Like, no, they're terrifying. They are like when God takes everything. Like this is, uh, it would be horror if it wasn't for our good. Do you know how you see this? Is the simple fact that people in our society are so afraid to say that there's a God who created this world. Mm-hmm. What does that fear come from? I think if if there is a God who created this world, well, they say, well, it's not science, all this, all that garbage. But I think it comes with such vehemence that they're afraid. Right. If because that means mir- they have to answer to somebody. Right. It's the same thing. Well, if there's a God who created it, guess what I haven't been doing? Right. I have to answer to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that creates a lot of fear. Um, and so, And that's the thing. You're a bad doctor if you keep bleeding somebody who's already been bled. Yeah. Right? You can think of uh, uh, George Washington. Mm -hmm. Had pneumonia. They kept bleeding him until he died. Or if you want a biblical example, think of Eli. Mm -hmm. So Hannah goes to the tabernacle, crying her eyes out, praying because she is just in the dumps because she doesn't have any children. It seems like God has forsaken her. uh, Her rival wife uh Penaya has been just terrible to her and he comes in and he's like you're drunk get out of here right well, one, one thing that uh i think luther does a beautiful job of walking this line um mm-hmm. in his uh meditation on the passion where he basically says this kind of thing um if you don't see the terror of the cross meaning you think that you don't have to repent of your sins or you don't see the terror or the grossness of your own sin when looking at the cross, seeing this is what you have to pay for yourself if Christ doesn't pay it for you. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he kind of walks that line to say, if you don't feel the terror, 
you should. And what he's doing, he's walking that line that to those who do feel that terror, that they find comfort right. in the fact that Christ died for them. So that, that's, a, that's a beautiful way of, of, of using, walking that line, because you deal with people, you know, um, who do have terror. And to be honest, um, you know, we're not just talking about uh, those with faith and those without faith. Right. You're instructing those maybe who need to, of faith, who need to reconsider. Right. Who need to look at God's law. That's why... why uh, That's why I said there are only two types of people in the world. There are terrified sinners and there are secure sinners. Right. And and as as Christians, we go through both things. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. Like, we can't preach the gospel to... Uh, Secure sinners. This is what uh, uh, the prophets, the false prophets of right. Jeremiah's day, did when uh, people were just living the way they wanted to live, and they're like, "Oh, the temple, the temple. We're God's people. He won't abandon us. We've got, we've got all these things. It's okay." And this is also why today we see in many churches uh, the the social gospel aspect, because when you say there is no law, ultimately, what's your gospel? You know, if you say are afraid to call sin a sin, well, then the the forgiveness doesn't mean anything, and so you're kind of grabbing at straws. So, so you you wind up turning the church into I don't want to condemn. Well, you you sin. remember Professor Plus, right? I never had him. Okay, that's he, before my time. Uh, I'm that old. It was after your time. After yeah. my time, yes. I'm that he, old. Yeah, uh, he said that if you scratch an antinomian long enough, you'll find a legalist, and that's what. A lot of this, the, these antinomians, the social justice stuff is because they are so intent on destroying uh, every institution, the mm-hmm. government, family, all of this stuff. They're, they want to rip it all down. Um, but what kind of law is put in its place? If you don't agree with them, you are a right. racist. I mean, theirs is v- their, their, their legalism is very, very clear. Right. Uh, but it, I think it came from though, from not from being an antinomian, from right. hating the law, right? And so, yeah. All right. Well, uh, good discussion. Hopefully, the listeners are learning a lot and enjoying this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I just I like the idea of going through these for the people from uh, behind the collar. What kind of goes through the the mind of a pastor when reading these and helping you understand them? So, all right. That brings us to Pastor Peace Theater. Peter, play the intro. So, uh, welcome to Pastor's Peace Theater with Pastor Berg. So, it's been a while since we... Just a minute. Oh, I like that music. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, since we uh, since we haven't heard anything from Paul Hensel for a while, uh, we're going to get back into it. It's going to be amazing. Um, so, here we go. But there are other afflictions beside denominational walls which part Christian from Christian, as every pastor must know when he makes sick calls and often labors in vain to penetrate the forbidding shell of reserve and reach the inner man of faith. The patient, too, through no fault of his own, is often at a loss to penetrate the official armor of the clergyman and to clasp the hidden hand of the shepherd and fellow sufferer in Christ. Ritualistic worship is good, Yet over and above that, we long for a personal word of testimony from one another. 
With meekness and fear, we silently ask for the reason of the hope harbored in the bosom of our brother. It is not always forthcoming. There are more involuntary hermits in our church than we suspect. Even in the assembly of those with whom we are of one accord, with our closest colleagues, our fellowship is fragmentary. We are not all built alike. It grieved the Apostle Paul to admit there was but one Timothy among all his co-workers in full accord with him, one full, wholly wrapped up in Christ, even as he was. The rest, though Christians too, were more or less seeking their own. Besides, we only know in part, and hence our fellowship in part. The Spirit helpeth our infirmities. As he draws us upward into Christ by faith, he simultaneously draws us inward toward one another in love, by gradual growth and mutual increase in the knowledge of the gospel. The word of God is our one and only medium of communication. It is crystal clear. Still we shall remain in some captivity or other, each in his own separate cell as long as we live, and must content ourselves to communicate with one another, even with those we love dearly, as the prisoners do in code, as they tap the walls with their fingers and wait for a faint and abortive reply from the distance. It were well for those who sit at the round table of high church council and swing in swivel chairs, racking their brain to find a formula agreeable to all parties, with a huge Lutheran merger in mind, to think on these things. They would take themselves less seriously. Heaven-born faith life is incurably gregarious but never promiscuous. A Lutheran lady and her childhood Catholic lover, both gray and wrinkled now, remained single, true to one another, and true to themselves, and rather bore the affliction of a solitary life than sacrifice what is most precious to us, peace of heart, rather than bind one another forcibly with the chains of their own conscience. That woman, with the sachet of long, lingering sadness hovering about her form, yet a sadness softened and sweetened by the faith which hath overcome this world, commanded respect wherever she was, and in whatever she did and said, a stately figure of Christian freedom indeed. This illustration might suggest a proper attitude and approach to the friction and faction-torn Lutheran Church of ours, with this proviso, that the various sister synods in their spinsterhood could well serve one another with a running interchange of hearty polemics. True Christianity is neither unionistic nor separatistic, but as the garlic bulb, individualistic. That then brings with it affliction, wholesome affliction, for it teaches us to look to the hills from whence cometh our help and groan. Watchmen, what of the night? Okay, why do you like that passage, Berg? Uh, there's a lot here about uh, that it's not just outward things that divide Christian from Christian, uh, but it is also upbringing, mm-hmm. um, different personalities, uh, different ways of communicating. The way that he talks about the patient, through no fault of his own, is often at a loss to penetrate the official armor of the clergyman. And it's the same way with the pastor, who's trying to penetrate the forbidding shell of reserve. And we, we see this as pastor. You know, we uh, all pastors are different. Mm-hmm. They have different strengths, different weaknesses, um, and uh, different personalities. But uh, when he's talking about Lutherans getting along, I think it's like we talked about in the last episode, petty things. Those petty things can actually get in the way of 
actually having good and honest dialogue with each other. Right. And I think it's very important for us to realize that even in this life, our fellowship is fragmentary. Um, there is always a barrier between us. We're like prisoners. And the one, the sort of Morse code that connects us, by which we can communicate, is the Word of God. Right. That's the one thing that's clear. That's the one thing that actually binds us together. And so all of these big uh, hullabaloos about church mergers or, you know, being with everybody else, it's we're not even with our closest friends. Right. We don't actually, I don't know your heart. Mm-hmm. I don't know my wife's heart. Right. I don't know my son's heart. And I think actually marriage is a good example in this way. Think of it. Think of how um, when you get married, you know, a lot of people, there's that one person. You know, you say you, you search your whole life to find that one person, mm-hmm. right? And then you get married and you realize, whoa, we're really different. <laughs> yep. You know, even the person that you are the closest to, that unlike your family, you actually chose. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, and so you chose that person out of all these other people. That's why I tell tell my wife, you know, I just want you to know how special you are, honey. That think of all those women out there. I chose you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you know, it makes her feel special. She should. I mean, if you're listening, please comment on the uh, Facebook page, please. <laughs> But no, no, think about it, though. And then you still have arguments. Yeah. You still, you know. You can predict a lot of things about them, but you never truly know them. Right. And Never so, completely. Right. And, you know, after 26 years, everyone's like, I'm grabbing at straws. <laughs> it, it, it happens. <laughs> and this is his point, is we... Uh, which is why the word of God is what unites us. And then to take that marriage illustration even a little further, how he gets into heaven-born faith life. It's incurably gregarious, but never promiscuous. We always go and talk about the faith because we believe it, right? right? We talk about it all the time, but it's not promiscuous in every sense of the word. Right. And then he uses the idea of a Lutheran lady and her childhood Catholic lover, not a lover in the sense of, that most people think of it today. Right. But basically someone that she dated, someone that she loved. Right. And yet they never get married because there is that divide. Mm-hmm. They they would rather, they want to stay true to one another and true to themselves and rather bore the affliction of a solitary life than sacrifice what is most precious to them. That this faith, that what we have received from Jesus, what we believe... Uh, is more important than getting married. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is something, unfortunately, that uh, this works not only for synods, he's using it here in the context of synods merging, mm-hmm. but I think even on an individual level, um, most of the time when people of different Christian denominations get married, it doesn't really work all that well. Sometimes it does. Yeah. Sometimes well, it does. Well, usually but, usually what happens is uh, um, over time, it, very rarely does it stay where we're going to be different denominations and stay. 
usually one of them will say, well, you know, I'll just, <laughs> which always kind of kind of weirds me out every once in a while, where, where someone will say, well, I grew up Catholic, but I could be Lutheran. <laughs> which, then I wonder, okay, did you really believe it? Or, you know, there, there's always this question, right? Um, which I, I think is an important thing to ask. I'm not saying you have to all be raised in the faith. What I'm saying, though, is is that um, you shouldn't just do that to get along. Right. You shouldn't just do that so that way you have shalom in the home. You shouldn't just do that because it's the easy way out. You should do it because you actually believe it. Right. And if you don't believe it, then you shouldn't get married. And and, and actually, what actually what does wind up happening is is they might at first. Um, agree in the sense of for for the sake of peace in the house, but generally because they're doing it for peace in the house, it's because the other one really strongly believes in what they do, and they make sure that they're in church every Sunday. And there, what happens is a growing appreciation in the faith happens from that. And it does happen sometimes like that. I've also seen it the other way where. A Lutheran marries a Roman Catholic, and in ten years nobody goes to church. Right. You have this indifferentism, or yeah, and uh, or uh, or anything else. It's hard for specifically children, right? Because children are are cert, you know wondering what is true, and if there's a conflicting message in the home about that, mm-hmm. that becomes hard because children will spot that. Yeah. And so I I do think that that's a very important point here that it's important to remain you know, neither one of these two get married so they remain true to each other but most importantly they remain true to themselves. Right. Um which is the main thing I mean that we don't harm our own conscience. Right. And um being unequally yoked is harming your conscience. And and in a sense this way too is, um, you know, as a Lutheran, when you marry someone, if you love husbands, if you love your wives as Christ of the church, you really want them to have the fullness of the gospel. And this is why, before a proposal, you really should go through what you both believe. I've always been a big fan of, you should really do marriage counseling before the engagement. Well, you, you you're a big proponent of a proponent of arranged marriages, still, aren't you? Well, there's some of that. I mean, not necessarily, but um, <laughs> the whole point is is that a lot of this should be done and thought out through before you make that commitment, because that's what engagement is. When you're engaged, you've said, you know, do you want to marry me? Yes, you've. You've actually made a pledge. You've actually made an oath. And that is a big thing. Right. In the Old Testament, uh, that's what it was for Mary and Joseph. They were betrothed. That means they were engaged. And to break that engagement was tantamount to divorce. Right. And so we should take this promise, this oath, this pledge very seriously. And that means you should have everything worked out before before uh before that point right especially religion especially religion right although kids always laughed at me because because i was always one 
who says, you know, when you're dating, I, I never understood why you couldn't, like a like in high school, date more than one person because there's no oath. You're still trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, I that yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't get me. I don't understand modern dating at all. So oh, I, that's so, why I wasn't very so in good middle at school. It, you so. when when you never asked a girl to go with you. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> that but that, was, that was the thing. Will you go with me? Where? <laughs> <laughs> Vicar, did you do that before? No. No? Okay. So, I mean, and that's the thing, is that a lot of this stuff should be thought out, talked about beforehand. Right. And, uh, you know, you better make darn sure, because there are some decisions you make that are with you forever. Marriage is one of those decisions. Mm-hmm. That is, that is for life. And... um it's hard enough. It's hard enough just dealing with the physical, like day to day, like budgets and clean and dirty diapers and all that stuff. And then if you have to argue about whether to baptize your kids or not, or uh, where you're going to raise them in the faith, I mean, that's infinitely harder. Right. So yeah, tell your kids they should do marriage counseling before they get married, before they get engaged. So. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of our show. Um, uh, Vicar, if they want to comment, we haven't had very many questions. We need some questions. Where, where can they send their questions to? Uh, they can they could email the show at feedback at clericalerrors.org. They can comment on the Facebook page, uh, which is facebook.com slash clericalerrorspodcast, or they can find the podcast on Twitter at clericalerrorsp. P for podcast. At me, bro. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, I am Bullhagen. I'm Berg. And I'm Vicar. And may your spinsters have polemics. Thank you for joining us. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Questions, thoughts, concerns? You can contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. On Twitter at Clerical Heirs P for podcast or email us at feedback at clericalheirs.org. Thanks for listening to Clerical Heirs. See you next time.